This is the Africa Blogging Podcast, your home to authentic political conversations from across the continent. Hello. Thank you for joining us in this edition of the Africa Blogging Podcast. In this episode, we'll start off with sports, the World Cup to be precise, then quickly shift gears to heavier topics like Ghana's struggling economy, the elections in Nigeria, and the force behind Labour's party Peter Hobi, whose popularity is currently in the rise. And finally, we delve into the insecurity situation in the Sahel region and West Africa. My name is Daniel Ominde. I'm the lead editor for Africa Blogging. Having this conversation with me on this podcast is Emmanuel Obenga Profi, a political scientist and Africa Blogging contributor. This episode is a continuation of our special series on key developments in the continent for 2022 and the 2023 outlook. Oh, hi, Daniel. Uh, pleasure to hear your voice once again. Uh, I think you basically covered it all. So that was a really good introduction. Great. So I know it's been a while since we spoke. It's been a while since we saw each other. I think the last time we saw each other was earlier in the year when we met in, um, it was the first time we were actually meeting in person um, in Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire. Um, yeah, and we actually had an interesting stay, interesting conversations there around, you know, what's happening in politics around Africa. But but generally, even before we go into politics, I mean, we're just coming off the World Cup season, man. And Ghana was our hope. How do you guys feel about what happened at the World Cup, by the way, your team's performance? Well, I mean, from a personal perspective, uh, it was quite disappointing. Because mm-hmm. we waited for less revenge in a way for so many years against and Argentina, <laughs> against against um, Uruguay no, oh, because of what Suarez yeah. did to us. Sorry, <laughs> I I I I, I forgot. Yeah, I meant Uruguay, not not Argentina. Yes, because of what Suarez did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we waited so long for this, and everybody was you know kind of waiting for us to. Deal with I, them, the whole And you actually got an exact opportunity to revenge and down. Wow, it was unfortunate, but the good thing is, I mean, yeah. for us, we're also a bit happy because then both of us went home. Although we lost, uh, yeah. they couldn't progress. So it was a win lose a bittersweet kind of situation for us. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I think it was really interesting to to see um the kind of teams that Africa put in um at the World Cup today this um I mean this year, uh this edition of the World Cup. And it was also very interesting that more all of those teams were being coached by you know by local coaches, by African coaches from the respective coaches. But um I think for Ghana you coach resigned um immediately after the last match. Um but also, I just want to um, even just not delving into that again. Um, like, there's a lot of investments that you people put into sports for 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 you for your you know con- performance across the continent to be very consistent, and you've also very consistently represented this continent um, in terms of um, in World Cup. So, um, is it that the government there is uh, really making a lot of investment investments in sports and development of talents, especially when it comes to the to the sporting arena? Or what what approach that does the government in um in Accra take when it comes to sports football, to be very specific? Okay, well, with that, I think there is some level of investment, quite substantial, uh, in the fact that for our national teams, we have, uh, you know, the various levels, right from, I think, 
uh, the age of 10 mm-hmm. to the senior national team. So it mm-hmm. has across on both the male and the female side. So uh, in that respect, then it means right from that infancy level, you would have the opportunity to probably be training and then have potential to probably represent the country in the, you know, the, the, the leagues or the tournaments that we played across. And one other thing is also that the people themselves love the football. So even from a tender age, when they see that kids are playing, then there's a little bit of talent. The families themselves will push for these kids to probably get some representation in the local leagues. And then if you are fortunate enough, you get a call up to represent the country maybe some tournaments that comes up. But of course, the government also puts in quite a lot of money to uh-huh. the Ghana Football Federation, and they also attract quite a lot of investment. So uh, overall, I think it has been an issue of um, you know passion on the side of the people, and then uh-huh. also the government's uh, conscious efforts to you know pump all the resources, get all the networks, and you know build... The, 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 the national teams to, to that kind of uh, expectation that we, we want. Yeah, that's some really good news. But moving away from you know the, the World Cup and its challenges and its um and its challenges, but also the impressive um explanation you've given us in terms of the kind of development that your government is putting in place um for sports, trying to build them like from a very tender age, um like um having a national team structure from ages of ten yards upwards, and it's even inclusive. Uh, this this is both for you know male and female players. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of challenges um that Ghanaians have struggled with this year there's been runaway inflation um there's a depreciation of your local currency and of course spiraling um debts um a lot of this debt is a uh, local debt um or debt uh co- local commercial debt um but then um you guys have also the country has also defaulted and as of uh monday last week you officially defaulted in some of your you know uh international debt commitments like with the um, with the euro bond and some of the bilateral uh debts that that the country that the country has but then again i'm i'm looking at it from the perspective of um e- economic growth um so for the third quarter of the year your economic growth slowed down to like 2.9 percent year on year and for the third quarter and this was compared to 6.6 percent um last year we've been reading about this in the news we've been watching and hearing conversations about you de- the country's debt situation if you look at it like from somebody who lives in um in accra how does daily life um look like for for the people in accra today um well yes you've captured the entire economic situation in 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 that whole you know uh summary and for people in Accra, especially being the capital um what then it means or it translates into um higher cost of living and then high cost of commodities high cost of you know transportation because uh, in most cases what we have realized is that Whenever there is an economic downturn, the major effect is on the people in the capitals. And that is precisely in Accra. Because this okay. is where, uh, being the capital, you know, if you have a lot of industry setting up over there, most of um, offices are set up there, international 
organizations have their offices set up there. So once there is an economic downturn, it then translates to high cost of production, high high overhead costs, and then also basic stuff like housing, like rent, like food commodities, like fuel, becomes so expensive that the people living there uh, feel that kind of brunt. And it's also because most of the people in the capital are people who have migrated from the various rural communities to the capital to find work to do. So um, overall, this whole downturn has really, really affected people in, in when you look at the country not just accra when you look at like ghana today um when you're talking about these high fuel prices when you're talking about the the, um, the rise in, in commodity prices i mean paint a picture for us like what are we looking at how much was fuel costing costing before how much is it today what's the cost of a bread um, today vis-a-vis -vis what it was like you know a year two years ago sure so um for instance for fuel um, I think beginning of the year, sometime last year, you would have gotten maybe uh, a liter of fuel for about 10 CDs that would translate into uh, below a dollar. Mm -hmm. It was below a dollar for like a liter now. And, but then when we got into the year, uh, fuel prices have increased. So now, let me say fuel prices have increased almost by sevenfold, because even mm -hmm. within the first quarter, we had fuel prices, you know, changing and increasing about three or four times, somewhere mm -hmm. in the middle of the year to the same. And the last quarter too, if I'm being correct, I counted about two or three times. So we are mm -hmm. looking at you know, fuel prices changing from that 10 CD going into uh, 50 CD, 80 CD, that is above a dollar. Mm -hmm. And when you come to the bread and butter issues, for instance, mm -hmm. referencing actual bread, bread, mm -hmm. a loaf of bread that you could have got same for say uh, five CD again, which is way below even a dollar. Mm -hmm. Now, a, a loaf of bread will cost more than a dollar. Yeah, I'm seeing the global petrol prices um, website putting you your current um, fuel prices at 1.8 um, US dollars per liter. I mean that's 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 really that's really steep. I think it, to to some extent it's um, it's almost as steep as it's it's been happening in Kenya. But then again, um, what is the like? What is the what is our position like um the ndc party for instance what are they saying about how the country is being run right now um are, are they criticizing the government in terms of how they're they're managing the economy and and and, and are they suggesting any giving out any suggestions yeah sure i mean for for uh for uh politics it's it's always been like that and Funny enough, but then interesting enough also, the issue with the economy, the issue with uh, the downturn of the economy, the mismanagement that was alleged by this current government when the NDC government was in power, mm -hmm. we realized that those are the same issues that are recurring. These things were things that when the NDC was in power, this current government, then in opposition, was really chastising them about cost mm -hmm. of fuel, cost of living, 
increase in housing, rents, government salaries not being paid, delayed in payments of salaries and all that. These are similar issues that were there. And now the opposition is also, you know, echoing the same issue. So for, for, for some of us, we are not even surprised, but it is very unfortunate that these issues have become a cyclical issue, such mm -hmm. that for every change in government, and it's, it's, it's quite interesting that it almost always happens along the second term mm -hmm. of the government. Mm -hmm. And so for some of us, it has become like a pattern that you realize that for their first term in office, the, their mm -hmm. first four years, they mm -hmm. do exceedingly well. Mm -hmm. And then for their second term, you realize that that kind of you know productivity sort of diminishes to mm -hmm. a point where uh, before they leave office, you would realize that the country is in massive debt. Mm -hmm. So the opposition on their part, yes, have been, you know, have been on, on the issue of the government providing all the necessary, you know, alternative advice that they can provide. And then also, you know, speaking against some of the things that uh, in their view are not in the interest of, of, of the people. Um, uh -huh. So they are playing the part of an opposition government. Uh -huh. And so they, 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 they are doing their part anyway. But I think the issue really has to do with whether or not there is that kind of uh, collaboration between members of parliament. Because uh -huh. some of the issues that that uh, need the decisions that need to be taken is not a one-sided decision. You uh -huh. need the approval of parliament, and parliament is made up of both the opposition and then the incumbent. And interesting enough, this current parliament, the difference we have sort of a hung parliament because uh -huh. the difference between uh, no one would have a majority. The incumbent uh -huh. government does not have an absolute majority in parliament. Uh -huh. So in, in a way, every decision that will be taken, the opposition is part of it. Uh -huh. So it, for, for most people, it has become the issue of, is it the case that they are conniving to do the things they are doing, or is the case that the incumbent uses is, you know, executive power to drive whatever it wants through. But then, of course, um, on the outside, we see a lot of, advice coming from not just even um, the opposition, coming from academia, coming from civil society, coming from some media, people who have, you know, covered the country's uh, politics and governance issues for quite a, a period of time. So that has been the situation. So now that we're in that political space, if you look at earlier, even when you're writing for us on Africa Blogging, you're explaining how the results of that election was being challenged on, on in Ghana. The Supreme Court, in that article that was titled Democrats on Trial, was the will of the people subverted in Ghana's election. The former president, who's currently the leader of opposition, went to court and was challenging um, the election of, uh, of Akufo Adu, and that's former president John Mahama of NDC. How are things right now? Was that matter dealt with? in a way that, that allowed the country to move forward. Basically, from a political front, what does the country look like today? Oh, okay. Um, well, for us, the what I would say, the good thing about us is that we are people who are able to move on quickly from some of these things. 
And of course, during the election season, you know, tempers are high, emotions are on the rise and the frenzy and everything. So people are a bit hyper. So during that period, you see a bit of, you know, agitation in here and there. But once it gets to the Supreme Court, people mm-hmm. lay back and listen to what, mm-hmm. you know, the law has to see. Proceedings were televised. So, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, you will sit back, you will listen to what your supporters are probably alleging in courts. And yeah. you even based on that, you can even judge based on the merits of evidence being presented. But of course, mm-hmm. they went to court and it was, you know, thrown out that, that they had no case. And the country moved on quickly from that. But interesting, on that note, on that particular issue, just yeah. recently, um, the, the, the opposition's then um, general secretary, mm-hmm. there, there is a leaked tape alleging to be the voice of that general secretary saying mm-hmm. to some party members that uh, the petition that they even sent to uh, the Supreme Court then they knew mm-hmm. that they had no case, ah. but they still went ahead. Yes, that is an interesting thing that came out, I think, about just a week or two ago. All these things no. come out, and then you know, people will come to realize that, oh, really? So if indeed you knew that uh, you had no case, why did you hold the country at ransom like that? Because those were times that were turbulent. I mean, people were so sure that uh, their party was winning and they were being disenfranchised or they were being cheated. Yeah, I'll say we see, we, see, we see this a lot in many African countries, like guys going to court to challenge the, you know, the outcome of elections at the presidential level, even though they know that mm, the, the facts were, were not with them. Um, we've seen this in Kenya during these elections where, you know, there was really not so much evidence that was produced in court um, when Mr. Odinga challenged the, the, the election of the current president, uh, Mr. William Ruto. And I, I, for me, I think that to some extent, it's usually an, an issue to do with how do we manage our supporters? How do we, you know, keep them having hope, hope in, in us? But also to another extent, it's, it's about people suspect that something wrong happened, but usually the timelines that have been allowed, um, by constitution to have these matters settled, the procedures in terms of how many days you need to collect evidence and take the evidence to, to court. There's usually just not so much you can do with that within that time. So guys even go to court and then engage in a fishing expedition in terms of they are trying to collect evidence after they, they they've already filed um a petition in court i i see that happening a lot um in africa but now that we're talking about elections an interesting country that you also write about that's going into elections is um nigeria and i think in september um the electoral commission they are cleared about um uh, 18 candidates not about but cleared 18 candidates to to vie for for, for the elections and that includes the two-time vice president atiku abubakar of the people's democratic party of course there's Bola Tinubu of the All Progressive Party, Peter Obi of the Labour Party, and um, Rabiu Kwanakso of the New Nigeria's People's Party (NNPP), among among others. I'm I'm surprised by by what I'm seeing in the polls so far. Of course, most polls are putting Labour Party's Peter Obi as you know uh, projected to to win the next next year's presidential election. But of course, there's the guy who's surprising everybody. Um, Bola Tinubu. I mean, he of the All Progressive Congress Party. 
guy really didn't think he was going to perform um, as well as he's currently doing in the polls. Is he really, um, from what you're seeing from across the border, is he really uh, a big challenge for uh, for Mr. Obi for the, the ticket for the I mean for the country's leadership? Well, yes, on Nigeria, it's quite an interesting front because Mr. Obi emerged as you know Labour Party's candidate after uh, there was a bit of issue with his previous party, so he left and joined this party and. What is even more interesting was that um, when he became the Labour Party's um, flag bearer, there were a lot of commentary around the party not having structures because, I mean, they were classified like a minority party. He had no chance on the face value of, you know, structures in terms of politics. But what we realized or what I realized was that the young people, the youth became his structure. Uh-huh. So it was the young people on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever, who started doing the publicity for him. Uh-huh. So even before, you know, he started moving around on the official campaigning, the young people had already started doing the groundwork for him. They had already started campaigning on Twitter, doing, you know, community engagement, setting up billboards for him and because um, i think it stems from the fact that um Bulatinubu from the apc is not a candidate that resonates with the young people for them the current uh, apc press uh, candidate who is uh, president buhari has failed the country and has failed the young people especially due to the insecurity that has been you know, kind of really the, the country, but uh-huh. now I found hope in Peter Obi, uh-huh. not just because he is, you know, somebody who, I mean, of course, for most of them to, when he was governor, he performed very well. He does uh-huh. not have a lot of, you know, scandal surrounding him, like most politicians that we hear in Africa have. So uh-huh. I think he is a breath of fresh air to the young people. They see him as that kind of political messiah. And so they are willing and ready to go all lengths to, you know, support him. Now, the downside of that is also that um, in most cases, when these things happen, people might tend to overlook, you know, certain realities. So for most people, the, the argument is that, well, the Labour Party cannot win because they do not have official structures to pull the numbers and all that. And so they should probably think about the next election, not this one. But hey, as we know, when the people want what they want, they get it. Election mm-hmm. is yeah. about numbers. And mm-hmm. so if the people have decided to follow this candidate, and of course, looking at the, the you know the demographics across the continent, Nigeria per se, you would realize that most of the young people doing, uh, who fall within the uh, voting age, I mean, most people who fall within the voting age of the population and the young people. So if these young people, as we are seeing every time on the social media, are going to be campaigning for him and are willing to go to the polls to vote for him, I don't think there is any doubt that he can win. And so he is a formidable candidate. And of course, Bola Tinobu is an experienced statesman. He has mm-hmm. been in politics 
for a long time. He has been a one-time governor of Lagos State, one of you know, the biggest in the country. So he also has that kind of experience to probably outmaneuver, you know, the young bloods who who might think that uh, they have numbers and all that. But of course, in the elections, yeah, anything at all is possible. But um, if you ask me on a personal front, um, knowing what I know about how youth um, revolutions are, are managed, I would say that if indeed um, Nigeria is ready, I'm sure they can and they can push for uh, Peter Obi to, to, to be their president coming next year. How easy is it or how difficult is it to beat um, an incumbent in Nigeria? And of course, the incumbent is not running, but the candidate for APC, Mr. Bola Tinubu, I mean, he, he has the entire state machinery working against him. And then he's also, there's also the third candidate who's um two-time deputy president, that's Atiku Abubakar of the People's Democratic Party, PDP. What, what, what challenges that then is the fact that he's competing against, you know, these two seasoned politicians with such a track record in the public service, but also with the current, um, you know, APC leadership giving their full support behind their candidate. Is, is it still a challenge that, uh, Mr. Obi can beat? Well, um, it is, it is because, uh, um, he emerged sort of out of nowhere um century mm -hmm. it's it's pd and pdp so mm -hmm. the, the the problem the problem now for him is to be able to capture you know the support of very critical stakeholders in nigeria's politics and he he has been able to do a bit of that because he has also been, you know, rallying the support of several seasoned, you know, past statesmen. I mean, I have seen him with um, former President Goodluck Jonathan. I have seen him in conversations with former President Solishigunu Basanjo. And so these were the kind of presidents who I would say, or from what I have studied about their politics, whose works the people appreciated. Mm -hmm. And so having that kind of, you know, support base, although it's not as grand as we see the current APC um, candidates, Latinobu having from, you know, other governors and the party structures and all that, he has come in like the new thing. That, and, and the most important thing for the people of Nigeria now is somebody who they think has, you know, the capacity to rescue the nation. And this is on all fronts. They are looking at not just from the fact that the person is, you know, politically fit to lead, having experience or not. They have sort of looked at it from different perspectives. And one perspective that I think has been critical for them is the issue of, uh, you know, physical and mental acuteness mm -hmm. why do i say that i mean we, we all we, we all know um what has happened over the last few few years of, of buhari's um stay in power i mean he was 
I mean, he spent the last bits of his term technically not being in the country, having to deal with health challenges, and there's a lot of vacuums and and, and small crises that 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 don't manage to put in. But if you, if you look at it this way, like I'm looking at it, like um, if you look at the population of Nigeria, Nigeria one, it's the biggest country in the continent in terms of population, but also if you look at the age of the population, the median age um in Nigeria is um. 18.1 years. That's a very youthful population. These are the people whom you said are backing um, the, pres the presidency or the candidature of Mr. Obi. Why is he promising them? And how is he able to capture these, you know, 18-year-olds? So, um, I'll take it from this angle. We have witnessed or we have seen the current president of Nigeria, um, President Buhari, having to go on, you know, a lot of medical trips outside the country, spending at some point, spending more time outside the country more than he did in his, you know, in the in, in Nigeria. Uh -huh. So this is something that is imprinted on the minds of especially the young people who, I mean, I think all around the continent are getting frustrated with, you know, old people having to lead them all the time and not having to even understand what the young people uh, are about. And I'll, I'll digress a bit and go back to the issue in Nigeria about the protest, the end SARS protest, mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. the young, mostly young people were protesting that uh, the, the state was using the security forces to harass young people and all that. And the yeah. aftermath mm -hmm. was handled. So you see, all these things are things that are playing into the elections come 2023. Mm -hmm. One is the fact that we have witnessed a president who in okay. who in his intent had to go on several medical trips, mm -hmm. had to stay outside the country for you know medical purposes. And now we are going into an election and we have a candidate who is young, who is vibrant, who has done work in both public and private sector, has built, you know, successful has managed successful businesses, is young, resonates well with the young people vying for the seat. So they see that competency, they see that, you know, appeal from him. And we have, yes, the APC candidate who is a seasoned politician who has, you know, the political bigwigs in his net. But then they also realize that, I mean, on the face value, there hasn't been any medical kind of uh, um, expert advice to say that he's not well or not. But on the face value, they have witnessed that no, this is not uh -huh. a man we want to be president because uh -huh. we have witnessed one before and uh -huh. the person did not perform to par. Uh -huh. So looking at it from the face value of the physical well-being, Bolatinobu will not be appealing to the uh -huh. young people and is not appealing to young people on that front. And uh -huh. then again, moving forward from that, Looking at the issues surrounding his, you know, his 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 political career and his even his private dealings. Just recently, there is a journalist, a Nigerian journalist who is living, I think, in the UK or US. He's an investigative journalist, David Mundane or something like that, who has oh. done a certain kind of expose on uh, the candidates, uh, Bulatinobu. I think uh -huh. the title of the is Bolatinobu from Raglord to presidential candidates, linking wow. him to certain 
Yes, I will share the link with you later. Linking him to certain, uh, you know, drug dealings in the USA in the early eighties, thereabouts. But but is it is it, is it is it is it not something that we see very commonly um, in Africa that leaders with questionable past, questionable um, characters, usually find an easier way to get into power because then they have the financial resources that they are able to use, you know, to bankroll their campaign, expensive campaign, you know, put up expensive advertisement, whether it's billboard or even just the, you know, mechanisms that that's needed to to mount a, a strong grassroots support compared to, you know, rather clean candidates. But go on. True, true. That that is that is very true. Uh, but what I see different with Nigeria's situation is a kind of mobilization that is going on. I mean, I have seen, I have witnessed a lot of you know online campaigns translating into even offline campaigns for Peter Obi mm-hmm. more than he himself has embarked on. So when we talk okay. about young people, and I want to move away shortly from, from the Nigerian election situation, when you talk about young people, how much is corruption a factor in the sort of decisions they're making across the border? I know in your own country, corruption is one of the issues that you guys have been dealing with. Um, it's it say that your country loses, Ghana loses up to like 3 billion US dollars every year to corruption. And this is something that was even confirmed by the uh, you know Ghana Integrity or Public Service survey uh, in the report that they released in 2021, they said, you know, you, you lose up to 5 billion Ghanaian cities. But is the situation better across the border or um, in Nigeria? Or is it worse than the situation that you guys have um, in Ghana? And then how does this play when it comes to that important um, young vote? I think in, in, in every election, especially across our continent, um, corruption has played a major role in, in sometimes even the outcome. And it's it's manifest in the area of you know votes buying, and um, in the case of Nigeria, even during their uh, gubernatorial elections, even selecting the candidates to represent the various uh, local government areas or counties or what they have, um, there were instances and incidents of alleged vote buying. So even at that level, or even at that time. If we were seeing this, um, translating it to you know the national election come next year, it is very possible. It is very possible that these things uh, would also manifest, especially because the stakes will be higher at that level. But, mm-hmm. and I say again, but, like I keep saying, if you look at the commentary, and I always go to Twitter because I see a lot of issues that happen in Nigeria coming on Twitter. And in most cases, if there is an online mobilization, it usually translates into offline action in Nigeria. That has been the trend, at least I, for the past two, three years. And I think Nigeria would be a special country to look at when it comes to being able to, you know, that how the transition between what's happening online and then bringing that to ground and being able to sustain, you know, that whole conversation online and offline. As I move away from uh, uh, Nigerian elections and, and, and try to come back home with you to Ghana, how important is the elections across the border to, to Ghanaians? Well, it, it, in, in a way, I mean, of course, they are also you know, they form 
a major contributor to the ECOWAS block in terms of you know financing and other uh, resources. And so whoever tends to lead the country in a way uh, that leadership would also affect you know the entire block. And so it is an election that is of keen interest to us, especially on you know the economic trading front, and then most especially on the security front, due to the issue of you know the insurgency in the northern part of the country. Because if um, there is not you know we don't, they don't get somebody who has a kind of strong leadership to take action to curb the spread of the insurgency. I mean, all around us, we have the issue of, you know, uh, radical and, you know, hostile movements all around our borders. Nigeria being the biggest within the sub-region. Mm -hmm. Holistically, if there's not that kind of leadership from them, mm -hmm. to curb or to halt that kind of, you know, spread, then we stand at a huge risk. And so it is an election that is also of keen interest to us. I mean, I have not seen a lot of uh, experts yet, you know, speak on it, but the few ones that I have had personal conversations with, uh, they tell me that, look, if come 2023, Nigeria is not able to uh, elect a president who would have, you know, that kind of willpower, who would have that kind of strategic mindset to deal with the issues that they are facing. I mean, it has the potential to spill off to the other other countries in the subcontinents. And so uh, I think going forward, um, it is an election that will be of keen interest to, to, to Ghanaians. This is something that you write about in, in, in one of the articles you submitted to us in September. Um, the article with the title, The Looming Danger Next Door, uh, Terrorism Along Ghana's Borders. And, and of course, we've seen what has been happening in the Sahel region. I mean, Mali, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Niger. We've also seen the issues with political instability in some of those countries. Um, um, even including, um, you know, uh, Burkina Faso and La Côte d'Ivoire and, um, do you, do you think that you know combating terrorism or um this um you know uh, this 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 militants in that region is 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 um is a, is an issue when it comes to this election yes um why do i say like, that because... like 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 a domestic issue in nigeria let me add that mm, yes it it is because um for them, with a bit of uh, research uh, work I did on a project, you would come to realize that the instability, the spread of the radical um, groups has that you know, negative effect on the economic progress. And so going into the election, they are not looking, just looking at somebody coming in to probably give that kind of political leadership or transform the economy. They do also recognize the fact that the spread of the insurgency up north has a potential to derail the entire country. And so they are looking at you know, electing somebody who they think uh, has a capacity to cause this. And one other thing also, there are a lot of allegations against even the current, the incumbent president, 
that he is in support of some of these things because um, in most cases that uh, the, the so-called Islamists have attacked, these people are people, they refer to them as the Hausa Fulani, who form or who are the kinsmen of the current president. And so some way, somehow, they feel that he is complacent because these are his people and whatever they are doing is no bother to them. But that's, and that's, just, into that, that, that's, that's just generally a feeling and a perception that's not that's <laughs> out there, but it's, it's not been given any, cre- any you know, credibility you know, by any organization anywhere, right? Yes. I mean, there hasn't been any established relationship between the presidents and what is going on. But, but, but mm-hmm. like we all know with elections, perceptions yeah. also matter. Perceptions yeah. sometimes even play a key role more than the actual facts on the ground because it is what people hear and feel that will move them to go and take certain decisions. The, the, yeah. the very few population who understand the issues, they are just, just few, and some of them might not even vote. But the wider masses who go out to vote, they are mostly influenced by some of these perceptions. Yeah, I look. I look forward. So that to, is also going to I, yeah, I look forward to reading more about what's happening in Nigeria in your submissions for 2023. And of course, when I say I look forward to reading, I mean reading on um, www.blogging.africa. That's the Africa blogging blogging platform where Emmanuel Obeng Akrofi, who we are discussing having this conversation with today is a regular contributor but i want to move away from the nigerian elections and and just still stay on that um topic of security the sahel and and west african region and i i I want to pose this question for you do you think that um because this is a cross-border um problem that we have right now i mean look at the country that's that's affecting um again mali burkina faso um cameroon niger um nigeria and you know even to you know even to chad um in in, in central africa would you say that you know ECOWAS, for instance is trying to is doing enough to to tackle insecurity in this region and when i say insecurity i also even want to come in broadly to to political insecurity to the extent that we've have we've even had coups um several coups in the region i mean in mali and burkina faso um earlier on um last week there were you know there was there was statements from the um you know from um from adama barrow's government that there was an attempted coup um there as well um, do you think ECOWAS is really stepping up to to ensure that there's security in that region or from your you know vantage point, are you seeing them basically holding off and, and not wanting to, you know, put um you know tangible proposals on the table on how to deal with the insecurity in that region? I mean, the reality is that look, every country is, you know, sovereign and it's independent. And once that country has a leader, um, has a set of rules governing, whether it be a constitution or conventions or whatever, uh, whatever really decisions that go on the the you know the regional blocks can only do much. I mean, but they've of been course, they've, they've been they've been joint interventions somewhere in other places in Africa. For instance, we've seen joint interventions in Somalia. We have Ugandan forces there. We have Kenyan forces there. We have the other forces from Ethiopia. We have um, you know tackling the 
the Al Shabaab situation, situation they have caused um, under the Amazon mission. In right now, in DRC, under the East um, Africa community, we have an East Africa standing force in DRC that includes, you know, soldiers from the from the neighboring countries trying to deal with the insecurity in the eastern part of the country with the M23 rebels. Current leaders in the ECOWAS region, because this threat is a threat to the region's entire security. It's not, it's not like, um, limited to Nigeria. It's not like limited to Mali or Burkina Faso. I mean, Ghana, you might be in a situation where you don't have, you know, the insurgents attack yet, but it's happening very close to your borders. Like you observe in your article, is it not in your interest or the interest of the ECOWAS countries to actually put together a force? that deals with this and and this is over and above the support that you know that 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 you know we are getting from countries like france and and the us who are who have you know sent in i mean pockets of special forces to try to deal with this situation but i mean that the intervention from the west is is, is still a drop in the ocean and we're moving towards this era where the sort of conversations we are having we're trying to find you know african solutions to african problems this is our problem our the ECOWAS member countries putting in proposals to tackle this issue? Well, um, I mean, on a personal front, I think um, ECOWAS hasn't really, you know, done much in terms of, you know, having in place a, a security structure that really has dealt with or can deal with the threat of insurgency across uh, the sub-region. Um, but of course, I also understand that um, in most cases, some of these countries do not or, you know, really are not of the idea of having to contribute, you know, military personnel towards some of these actions because they feel that once they do that, then they, they, they come on the radar of, of, of the insurgents. Because, uh, I mean, if you, are, if you are joining other people to fight us, then we will bring it to you. That is the kind of thinking. Uh, but of course, like you said, the threat is now, you know, it's around and it's looming. It's its not something that will just go away. It, it has to be something that is really yeah. dealt with. And I mean, and so some, going, some, sometimes you have to fight your enemy further away from your borders than within your borders. Like you don't have to wait for them to come in and attack you. You, you see like countries like the US that that's spending, you know, um. I mean, so much of their budgets in 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 ensuring that there's deterrence from across the world. They're fighting their war. I mean, that's what they say. They're fighting their war, their enemies before they can get back home to to launch those attacks. But but yeah, I I I get the the sort of point that that you're reasoning, and that's to the extent that um insurgency is concerned. What about political instability? What about the coups that we've been seeing in Burkina Faso? We've been seeing we've seen two two coups in Mali. We as there was there was a recent attempt in um in the Gambia. What do you make of that? And what do you make of ECOWAS involvement or rather even involvement as a deterrent measure? Um, so, uh, I mean, I think there was one article I wrote when it happened. So I want you to come back again. Um, we, we had a bit of a problem with your network and, and just take up the point you're trying to make from the top again. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, they can hear you, but you're breaking a bit. So I want you to be able. I want you to take, just 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 take up this point again from the top. You're trying to okay. make a very a That's very important. Again, we're still losing you, okay, Emmanuel. 
Yes, um, I can hear you now. So are you able to take this point again from the top just for the sake of our audiences so that we can, we can, we can get everything you're saying very clearly? Okay, so um, I was saying um, in terms of political instability, I, on a personal front, looking at uh, the Okuwa's um, reaction or interventions, I would say that they haven't done much. They have actually failed. Why do I say that? Because, you know, in terms of, you know, change of governments and all that, yes, in democratic dispensations, we agree that um, elections have to be conducted for, you know, governments to be changed. Now, what do we realize? In most cases, um, some, you know, individuals or some leaders find a way to massage constitutions to entrench their state and they stay beyond what was, you know, a reasonable allowance in, in, in the constitution. So if you you wait, okay, till when you, you realize that this person has stayed beyond their term limits, and of course they cannot say that they were oblivious of that. You are aware that per the constitution of these countries, uh, leaders are supposed to probably stay four years and another four years and you go away, you probably come back later or not. And if you allow people to massage the constitutions to, you know, extend their stay beyond what was reasonably allowed and you wait till when people have become fed up. And in most cases, such people become tyrants in a way. Mm -hmm. And they start using people to you wait for them so we look beyond we, their term limits. We look at you again. So I think the point you're trying to you make is what is beyond their term limits. So again, I think yeah. there's, there's a problem with your network, but I think the point you're trying to make is that um, some of these leaders, they stay beyond their time limits, and when they stay beyond their time limits, there's growing um, repressiveness in terms of their system of governance, but also the populists get really fed up and, and they start uprising, I, I, you know, they start you know, carrying out um, up, um, uprisings and, and demonstrations and all that, and then usually this creates like um, an opportunity or an avenue for elements of the military or the forces to to come in and sort of like to squell, uh, to put to bring back some level of stability like we've seen in Mali, but in other in Mali and Burkina Faso, but you know in in most cases it's not usually like the sort of stability we are looking for because again um I think um as a continent we have um you know those commitments that we've made even even through the Africa Union that we, we want to be able to solve our problems in a democratic way and, and there's no room for, you know, for coups um, anymore. I think um, the AU, for instance, has that project that's called Silencing the Guns and and, and, and basically that's the broader, broader objective that we have as a continent. But I think when you look at countries, specifically when you go back, when you come back to the continent and look at each specific countries and, and the sort of problems that they have, um, we've not been really able to silence the guns like we want to, and that's why we are, we are seeing like that insurgence of um, of coups, uh, especially in the you know central and and western African countries, um, like we've witnessed I think in the last three or or, or so years. And I know um, it's it's I mean we can't talk about this enough. Um, it's always a pleasure having these conversations with you. But I want to basically just looking into twenty twenty three. What do you see? As talking about when it comes to Ghana and and the region as a whole, 
Okay. Um, so in terms of the outlook for next year, uh, I think Ghanaians are especially uh, bracing themselves for, you know, um, you know, the economic changes uh, because the budget that was read recently uh, still has that kind of stringent measures that puts a lot of pressure on the ordinary Ghanaian. So people are bracing themselves up uh, for next year, but are also optimistic that um, next year things would also pick up, uh, especially because we are going to the IMF for supports. And so hopefully it forces you know, the government to uh, do things in a manner that will stabilize the economy and then put it back on track. Um, and to the broader context of the continent, uh, of course, looking at Nigeria, the elections will be one of the key events that would attract a lot of, you know, uh, ice on the continent. And so that uh, that would be something that uh, would also be focused on. Um, also because it, 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 it has a kind of effect. So again, I'm losing you there. So, but overall, I think. Yeah, so I think overall, I think I think the big thing that I can pick from what you're saying is that one, we are looking, we are going to be looking a lot at the economic situation in Ghana next year, especially with this um deal that they will have with the IMF to try and stabilize things back home. And of course, you know, defaulting on part of their international debt obligations is part of that, you know. Um, uh, deal that they have with, uh, with with the IMF. We want to see how that pans out and if it results um, in some reprieve back at home, and what then if the effect of that will be in terms of um, Ghana's ability to you know get more debt in the future or acquire debt in the future for their development needs, but also how it's going to affect you know the pricing of those particular you know foreign debt engagements that they already have. Of course, the elections in Nigeria, like we say, that's going to be big. It's not just big for West Africa, it's going to be big for the continent. Um, we are watching that keenly because again, Nigeria is one of, is, is a big economy in the continent. What happens in Nigeria has, you know, ripple effects, um, in, in other parts of the, of the continent. So we'll be watching that keenly and we look forward to more submissions from you and our colleague, other colleagues from Nigeria when it comes to that election process. Of course, you'll be looking at it from the outside, but of course, we'll trying to get some you know inside look in terms of um, what's going on in the country and what factors are at play when that, that, that decisions being made and of course um the growing insecurity situation in the Sahel region and West Africa I think that also would be a key for focus for us um next year man it's always a pleasure having this conversation with you Emmanuel I hope to see you at some point next year but before that, I think for me, thank you, man, for being part of this podcast. And it's always a pleasure, like, like I say, have a Merry Christmas. And oh, we already passed Christmas. Have a Happy New Year, my buddy. Okay, Happy New Year to you, Danny. Always a pleasure. Look forward to reading more from you on Africa Blogging. That is www.blogging. Africa. This podcast has been produced for Africa Blogging by me, Daniel Omide. Africa Blogging is a network of political bloggers and journalists from across Africa. The network is affiliated to Cast Media Africa, a program of the Conrad Adenu Stifter. The special sound effects used in this episode is Corporate Riser by Gonka Varel.